Hello, everyone, and welcome to the GMS Magazine podcast. Uh, this is a podcast all about uh, role-playing games, board games, and whatever you know. Chris and I decide to talk about. And for the foreseeable future, until you tell us that you don't want to see our faces anymore in YouTube, this podcast is going to be both audio and video. Hello, Chris. How are you doing? Hello. You're there. We can see you, all of us. That's quite a fancy background you have there. Are you trying to, you know, tell us something? <laughs> oh, oh, no. Oh, 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 oh this? Yeah. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> my, my fifth Kickstarter starts up in two weeks, two weeks from today, Tuesday. So it starts up on the 16th. And uh, so far, I've been gifted with a lot of fantastic backers for my fifth edition content. Ultramodern had a thousand backers. Affinity had a thousand backers. Both of them <coughs> crossed uh, over a hundred k Canadian, not euros. Because euros would be like I don't know, twenty five bucks. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's 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 something I'm 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 very proud of. Affinity was of course a spawn a, a spinoff of Ultramodern. Ultramodern was something I was um, very passionate about doing a reprint of. It was also a very safe product, but Amethyst is kind of my magnum opus. It's the one that's that I started on. Mm -hmm. um, do I actually have the original? Oh, it's one second. I do. I don't know. I know. I know. I don't have the original, but you're not hearing me now because you're away from the camera, and you can't. Anyway, it doesn't matter what I say. So I'm going to shut up, and you will not hear. Ah, exactly. This is right here. This is the first one. <laughs> I, well, yeah, that's better. Okay. Yeah, mom. That well, that's, the, that's the that's the first one. Uh, the cover was done by a gay name. <laughs> Freudian sleep. Uh, yes, by a guy named uh, J uh, Jamie Jones. Now, Jamie Jones uh, was a uh, college student when I hired him, and now he works for Bungie. Wow, that's impressive. That was very impressive. Yeah, uh, he works for Bungie, so he's worked on, he does work for Destiny, he did work on Halo. Uh, before that, he worked for Magic the Gathering. Um, a lot of people know him from Magic the Gathering. Uh, he did a few illustrations for me. However, the artist that I end up getting a kinship with is uh, Nick Greenwood out of North Carolina. Uh, he was the only one at the time that could do black and white because at the time we had to do black and white because we were limited in our budget. Uh, and that was the first one. Uh, I signed on to the 4th edition GSL mm -hmm. and Goodman Games reached out to me and we put, put out this product right here. If you put, if you, yeah, just, just so you know, if you put the book in front of your mouth, you sound like crap. I get this way. That's better. There you go. Yeah, so that started off with this one, Amethyst Foundations. Now, Foundations was um, fourth edition. It was kind of our first attempt at uh, diving into the system, and I think it had some issues. Plus, <laughs> production qualities. Not that great. Okay, and well. so I followed that up with my own publication, because Goodman and I cut, cut ties, and I made uh, Amethyst Evolution, which was another fourth edition product. And that actually did quite well. And that's what spurred me to do the first Amethyst Kickstarter in 2014. That um, was digital only back in 2014. It wasn't a lot of Kickstarter stuff then. I only made, raised about 11,000, but I only asked for 10. And uh, that resulted in me putting out the color version of Amethyst, which is right here. Now, that's the fourth edition version. And it is, if you can believe it, uh, 450 pages. That's a lot. Yeah. And then once 5th edition came out, I finally followed up with this, which is Quintessence. So Quintessence 5, 5e Quintessence. Uh, and like I said, the, the visual quality is quite good. Um, we, I wanted to go for broke. I wanted, I wanted a product that was really, really nice. Big, big illustrations. Okay. Uh, and this is 406 pages. Then we followed it up with, with its sequel, with it, which, is, which is Amethyst Factions. Okay. This one expands the setting mm -hmm. and tops out at a beefy 446 pages. How can you fill so many pages with words? I meaning something, you know, like, don't you run out like of said, words? It's, 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 a very, it's a very rich tapestry. There's a lot of artwork. Um, I'm very proud of the illustrations. No, no, they, they look very good, I have to say. Yes. <clears throat> so that's what we're doing. We, um, I'm, I'm making another, an, uh, a new book uh, called Revelations. It's just going to be for 5e because that's what sells. 
The previous systems had supported Savage World Fake Core 13th Age Pathfinder. Um, I have a Pathfinder version here, no, I don't. Uh, there's two versions of Pathfinder: the black and white original, and then the color reboot. Uh, and they, they they're okay, but with with the market shifting so much to fifth edition D and D, it would be foolish to to, to support the other systems at, at this point in time because it's it's so much effort. Obviously, at 400 pages, and the new book Revelation is going to have even more than that. Um, so yeah, you, you you saw the trailer. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I have many thoughts. F firstly, it looks gorgeous. It looks really super gorgeous. Uh, you're right. I, I edited that one. I can put that together. It's the illustrations are just fantastic fun and super mega gorgeous, really good. So from that point of view, uh, I think it portrays very well the kind of look and feel that you're going to get inside the, the setting, which is very, very important. At f over four minutes, it's a little bit on the long side for me. Yeah. Um, I don't... I wouldn't watch a video for a Kickstarter that lasts more than a minute and a half or two minutes. You know, if you if you're gonna tell me very quickly what I'm gonna get into, yeah. I, I, because I don't have time. That, that's that's the reason. So I think that it looks a little bit on the long side. And there is one thing that has irked me quite a lot. I have to say, this is be like, ah, why are you doing this? And it's that you have a few statements, uh, word statements coming and going at the beginning of the video. They are very quick to come and go. I wasn't able to read all of them. And there were no full lot of words in, 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 those, uh, in yeah. those statements. I think it would be a lot better if you want to keep the video that long. I think it would be a lot better if instead of having all the statements at the very beginning, spread them throughout the video. And, and have, uh, That's have, actually a pretty smart move. Yeah, because funnily enough, I had uh, I had a relatively shorter original video. Then I gave it to John Fink, um, who's my voice actor friend who does work like that for me. And he talks a bit slower. As you know me, I talk very quickly. So I edited the temp video to my voice. And I was putting pauses. I was making a boy. I was snapping my fingers to make sure every time I finish the sentence, I snap my fingers off, off the microphone to remind myself to give myself a pause. And even counting that, John Fink still managed to put it in a lot slower than me. So he added a full minute or so just on his narration. Well, the, the, the thing is that the diction is very good. And one thing that I like is that the voice is distinct enough that even with the music in the background, which is something that people complain about my videos, uh, doesn't mix the music and the words, so the, the yeah, we made, I made sure the music got pushed to the background. By the way, that's original music too, not not done by me. Uh, our my first Kickstarter amethyst, uh, our we only crossed like one stretch goal, which was which was an amethyst soundtrack. So a guy named uh, Bill e Bill uh, Bill Ian, uh, whose whose public name is Billion, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he, he was the guy who did the um, the soundtrack for me and. Uh, I would say it's about 60, 70 percent of, you know, I, I, I like the music. I mm. think he I, I was kind of hoping for a bit more of ethereal, more dreamlike. Uh, but I definitely liked his digital work. Uh, I'm actually hoping uh, to get another soundtrack for the new Amethyst Kickstarter. However, uh, Billion and I, we kind of parted ways. Uh, he kind of fell down the conspiracy hole. So unfortunately, oh. we had to, I, I had to cut ties with him. And uh, but thankfully, through uh, some of my new friends, I have several people that I would implicitly trust with producing an Amethyst soundtrack. Uh, that's something I'm very, very happy with. But uh, it's interesting because I, I, ha I have to boast, but I have to boast it with a bit of um, a caveat. Uh, I don't have a single... I have a Amethyst... If you, if you look through all the Amethyst books... I, 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 about, I, I can't because I don't have them. You, you will have them after this, this, this video is concluded, don't worry. Okay. Uh, the, the perks, I mean, that's one of the things, right? So Can I, can I stop with that for a second? I just want to show people, um, if you hear any rattling in the background, this is the reason. This is what Tycho is playing with. And if he does that? This is a chunk of uh, antler, of deer oh. antler, uh, which is a fantastic toy for dogs. 
but it makes a lot of noise. But the alternative is that he will want to play with me, which would be even more distracting. So I do apologize, but um, my dog lives here. I love him more than I love most of you listeners. Most of you, I'm sorry, but he's my dog. So he has to play, and I'm going to put him on his bed now. So, sorry, you were saying. Uh, so, yes, I have, I'll say, 20, maybe 25 reviews for my Amethyst books. Uh, some of those quotes are in that video, which I, I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head with that, with that comment. <clears throat> and uh, not a single, out of five stars, I don't have a single one below four. But the reason why I don't have reviews below four is partially because drive through RPG curates their reviews. Hmm. Now, one thing I'm a little annoyed at with Board Game Geek and Internet Movie Database is that anyone can post a review for any reason. Uh, I have a one-star review for Naramata for a guy that could in no way have played the game. <laughs> can you he, looked that? At it, he looked at it at the surface level and gave it a one-star despite having never even looked at he looked at the game on a cursory level and gave it a one star because he because he, he felt it was a ripoff of certain mm -hmm. games, not realizing that he was he was making accusations that it were in no way entire in any way possible. He was comparing it to certain mechanics. I'm like, well, that mechanic isn't in my game. I can't respond to the review. I can't flag it as being inappropriate because obviously he couldn't have reviewed the game. But one thing about drive through RPGs if they do. If someone, has, if someone is trying to troll you, you cannot post a one-star review unless you give an actual valid reason up or down. And DriveThruRPG is very good. They even will track IP addresses. So if you get your wife or your son to post a positive review, they'll know it and they'll go, you can't, you, your family can't post reviews for your own products, mm -hmm. right? And so it's one of the things I appreciate. But that also means, uh, on the opposite, if there's a review that, that they look at and go, this guy clearly has not read the book, they will delete the review. And it's surprising the number of people have deleted, how many, how many negative reviews for Amethyst have been, has been deleted. And the funny thing was, is that there are extensive reviews. And every single time somebody comes out with, with a hate comment for Amethyst, it's not about the mechanics, it's the politics. Okay. Now, so the gaming, D&D, like you and I have talked at, at length at how D&D is, has been, and will always have a, a, a political message to it. There's yes. always going to be something regarding to it. Be able to say, it's, get politics out of it, it's a game. Like, oh yeah, but D Dungeons & Dragons, they're not blind to the fact that they want to make this more open, more inclusive, you got more people into the game. And one of the ways of doing that is to create a welcoming space. And you can't do that without making messages that people will discern as being political. <clears throat> um, there was a point where somebody uh, called out this one publication, celebrating this one publication. Uh, this was, I think, three years ago for having black characters in their D&D book in their D&D role-playing game, black illustrations of, of people of color. And, and there was a whole chain about people, and I'm like, um, I, I, have, I have a black knight in Amethyst D20 from 2008, just FYI, right? <laughs> um, one of the, uh, a female reviewer, uh, Michelle Milburn, had commented in her review that she was very, very happy to see women uh, illustrated that were covered, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that, and that, so, so, so there, there's the illustration point of view, the fact that I'm trying to create that mix to create those spaces of trying to have, and the same thing, the fact that my, my Shaparin elves are very dark skinned. So the evil elves in Amethyst are albinos. Right. And Shaparins, who are the most kind of elf-like, very they're the tree folk, they're very much inspired by African culture, and they're they're a very powerful race, and yeah, they're they're you know, they're black. And <laughs> but and that's the thing, and, and that's the th that's the thing. I ma I made a point, and so we we always kind of mix up the the ethnicities, but no one ever called. Sorry, enough. 
play no with your ever, ever calls me. No one ever calls me out for that one. However, they call me out for uh, the politics. Uh, Amethyst does not shy away from talking about um, the politics of the world, the fact that when the world gets destroyed, when the world gets destroyed in the setting, because we have an apocalyptic event, and then this is 500 years in the future, where mankind has been corralled into these city-states. Uh, basically, if you wanted to travel from your city to another city, your city, your hometown is walled in, okay. and if you want to get to the if you want to get to the next city, you have to travel through Middle Earth to get to the other city, which is also walled up. That's basically how I kind of describe it to people, uh, because magic disrupts technology. Uh, it's more severe than electromagnetic impulse. It prevents um, rapid expulsion of gases, so you can't you can't have explosives, you can't have guns, you can't have internal combustion. And it, it, it's also electromagnetic uh, interference so it prevents electrical circuits and batteries to operate. So you have to shield yourself. So you have these giant tanks called ETVs, which are shielded in, in, in cold iron to shield themselves from magical enchantment. And these things thunder through the landscape to get from point A to point B. And, but the whole point, of course, is that people, humans banded together. They had to look past their petty, um, you know, their, their, their tribalism because they couldn't, they had, they, had, they, had a, they had a common foe. Right. So all the cultures of humanity had to force themselves to work together within this city. It also helped that they had a common foe. The, the non-human humanoids, the fae, the, you know, your elves, your halflings, your gnomes. And so that spun around. Now, the idea of having medieval cultures that oppress and are racist to elves is not unseen. We see it in uh, the Dragon Age series. Yeah. Right? So it's been done qu quite a few times. We see it in The Witcher, where, we ha where, where there's, there's, this, there's racism between. Uh, I went even further than that, and there's this uh, nation called Baruch Makut, which is in, uh, in Florida. Uh, no, no connection. Okay. It's, 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 well, the, the nations don't exist anymore. So, the, so I, I'll just say, like, you know, Angel takes up Oakland, California, and a bunch of other places, but those California doesn't exist. Baruch Makut takes up two or three of the southern states in all of Florida. But they, they openly enslave elves and uh, to write the content, because the setting is very rich. So we, I don't say, this is Baruch Makut, they enslave elves. I go into two or three pages of exploring their history of Baruch Makut, how they got to that, their setting. Uh, their politics, their belief system. And I very often uh, include excerpts from books and they look like little folded pieces of paper. Uh, I do that very, very often. I, it's something I do where I notice if, if I feel something's easier for me to explain it in the first person, I'll shift to a first person, but then I'll separate that piece of dialogue and make it an excerpt from a book and I'll place it as a piece of paper that's seemingly floating on the page. Now, when I did Baruch Mokut's uh, Rules About Slavery, I, of course, went to American history, and I literally pulled quotes from actual pro-slavery books. And I just shifted the, I just shifted the wording a little bit, because Baruch Mokut wasn't even, a, even, even, I wasn't even trying to hide the allegory. Right. That, that Baruch Mokut was an allegory for the southern states of the U.S. in the 1800s, right? And then on the opposite side, we have the Fey races, and the most uh, the largest one is a city called Limsha, which is this white-walled city, and it's very much an open. Um, like there are elves that are very xenophobic. The Beladines are very xenophobic, but the Limshaw elves are not. They they're they're all about. Uh, it's very much inspired by the dreamlike idea of Alexandria, rather than the realism of what the library in Alexandria was. The idea that this was a free-thinking public city where people can gather, read books. In fact, all of Zlimshaw is basically a giant library. It's a city, it's a city sized library that people live in. I mean, that sounds like something I would want to have in real life. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, there are, so there are libraries everywhere. There are branches that are the size of the city blocks. And then the elves have a branch of, uh, kind of a branch of knights called custodians. And they not only protect the knowledge, but they also are the people that will go outside the walls to seek out knowledge and either document it or retrieve books to be protected and brought back. So they have every single book that mankind's ever published that survived the apocalypse. But Limshaw was also, like most elves, very free thinking. 
right? There's public marketplaces. There's, there is, uh, you know, there is open intermixing of, 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 of peoples. So there are half elves and so forth. And prostitution is legal. Like it's, it's, it's all about personal liberty whilst also there's massive restrictions to prevent monopolies. So there are independent businessmen, but they're not allowed to operate multiple areas, right? They have a curtail crime. So there's a lot of regulation. It's very much a kind of uh, optimistic, uh, in my opinion, utopian idea of, uh, of, the, of this future. And of course, the criticism that went after it were people that went after that, right? One guy said, humanity are all the stooges. They're the, all, they're the bad guys. I said, well, that's not true. There's, a lot, there's all the monsters, right? We have goblins, we have ogres, we have all that stuff. Um, yes, of course, like I said, I thought it'd be more realistic that the underground elves be albinos rather than the drow, which are black. Yes. It just made more sense. So the Tenenbri are albinos and they're blind because they're underground, they're in darkness, they're used to that sort of thing. Um, and no one ever went for me against Sapum, but a lot of people went after the politics. The fact that I say that by default, most elves are pansexual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, re- that's the reason why they are surprisingly open to having relationships outside of their own people, whether it be humans or completely non-humans, whether like, you know, and there have been stories of, of, of Shaparin elves that are, are in relationships with forest spirits and so forth. So it's very much that kind of open thing. And, and so we, I take all that puritanical, and of course, Baruch McCutt's also right-wing religious, <laughs> which of course it helps. Limshaw, of course, is very open to me thinking. So you be and so one person who made a point of who of of of, of uh, expressing his uh, education, mm-hmm. like I have a degrees in this and this and degrees in this and this, and then he went into details why my world wouldn't make sense politically, because he was he was a right wing conservative, so he was all about free market capitalism, and saying the fact that I'm I'm pushing a very specific political view, and amethyst does do that. Amethyst does push a political view. It always has. Uh, I think, once again, that D&D and role-playing games, they can make a message. They can be artistic, just as much as video games are accepted as artistic now. So when someone says, you keep politics out of D&D, and I was like, that's how we progress. That's how D&D becomes more respected as a medium. If we create stories within our games that are meaningful. And, and that's, uh, you know, I, I posted a tweet about this a little while ago. A few days ago, oh, yeah. uh, where I said, you know, okay, I will keep politics out of uh, out of uh, your games, uh, as long as you keep bigotry and uh, you know colonialism and homophobia and misogyny and sexism away from mine. How yeah. about that? No, no deal. So, so what? So yeah. So for me, I decided. You know what? How about I do it all? Let's make sure that we put the bigotry in my st- setting. But I make it very, very clear that these are the bad guys. That under no circumstances, like when I did Neurospasta, which is my cyberpunk story, um, I very much presented this global world, this United, this kind of United Nations peaceful cyberpunk kind of future. And someone's like, you know, some people might be against the new world order idea. So I threw, threw in a few bits and pieces of lines of people who objected to it and tried to give reasons. And it was very hard for me to do that because I don't believe it. I believe in what the United Nations could do. I believe in peaceful negotiations rather than military intervention. Uh, when we go back to doing with Amethyst, that's the same way. It's um, Baruch Malkut are bigots. They're slavers. Uh, they're massively racist. And they're also the bad guys of the setting. And I don't make any qualms. I don't try to say, well, maybe they're misunderstood. Nope, nope. trust me. <laughs> Uh, the next book, actually, there's three novels, uh, Aiden's Way, Controlling Chaos, and the new one's called Hallowed Kingdom. And the main characters have to go into this area. Uh, actually, the main character has to go. They, they, they split, they split up uh, partway through Controlling Chaos. And this character has to go into Baruch Makut to find one of these magical artifacts. And he has, to let, he has to let go of his elf companion 
because she can't, she would not survive in that area. So he, in, in the Hallowed Kingdom, his plot line is he's going into Brooklyn Cut by himself. And he is told, you're going to see a lot of horrible things. You cannot get involved. There are, you have a mission and you cannot get involved. And within the first day, he gets involved because he could not turn away. So when he sees, he sees this, uh, uh, an elf creature called a Thailand, who is an, an awakened vampire. And these ones are the most hated of them all, to the point that even most humans have a distrust for Thailand. Baruch Malkut, they don't even slave them. They just kill them. And so he sees this Thailand that is up for it. He, he cannot stop himself. He literally ha he like, he found himself irresistibly having to liberate this person. The problem is now he's got this Thailand with him. He's like, I, I have a mission. And, and the Thailand's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and so it becomes them. And the thing is, they have to pose as, uh, as, as, as someone who's enslaved and someone who's a slaver. And it's repugnant to this character, but that's part of it. I, I gotta, you got to show that, that dirty side. And that's the same thing with, with fantasy. Um, whenever I talk to people at conventions about people who are interesting about the setting, I said it deals with the collision of magic technology. I said, what if the Harry Potter books, and I know this, this ignore the, the, the politics of his author just for one second. Um, let's say that you were, were going to write a book, but the main character was Ron Weasley instead of Harry Potter. So he's a regular Joe. He wasn't even a good wizard. He's a competent wizard, but he's not the main character. And let's also say that if Ron wanted to be a wizard, he'd have to give up cars, cell phones, cable TVs, refrigerators forever. He can never go back. He's stuck in that world of magic, right? And I've, I would pitch this to people. So many people go, oh, I would still totally do that. I go, yeah, wait until you don't, you don't have a refrigerator. Wait until you can't drive, you have to walk or bike everywhere and wait until you get sick and you need an x-ray. And suddenly everyone's attitudes start to change and like, oh yeah, yeah, the, the, the having, having good dentistry and having access to an MRI and advanced medical knowledge, that's kind of a big deal. And so the first book, Aiden's Way, deals with a boy who makes that choice, decides he wants to be a wizard. And he gets his ass handed to him for the first half of the book. And he stumbles on a quest. He stumbles on like a Lord of the Rings style quest of which everybody says that he is wholly unqualified to see through. And so the story deals with a person that's making like, so one of the things I say in the story, I say no prophecies or gods will save you. The idea that you have to find your own claim. And that's kind of the main story that, that there is no God. This is the, our real world. And that was, that was the other big thing, the fact that D&D &D usually has a pantheon of gods, whether it be the traditional ones or Greek gods or something. Mm -hmm. And in Amethyst, I'm like, well, Amethyst is the real world. If I actually have proof of God, that's really, really sketchy. Because I'm like, well, which God is correct? Is mm -hmm. it Allah? Is it, Abraham? Is, is it the Catholic God? Is it Vishnu? Right? I can't. So you can't say, well, they're all right. Like, no, that doesn't work that way because part of their tenets is that there are, the other ones are all wrong. So I present all the religions in the story, but, the, but clerics have a completely separate magical set. They're, like, they're, you could be a cleric and not have a faith in a deity because the way the story's been written, you can be a magically gifted spellcaster. Some of them are. Uh, religious, but not all the time. In fact, the, one of the major characters in uh, is is a is a Muslim cleric who has magical abilities. I specifically steered away from having a Catholic character because Aiden in the first story he finds out that dragons are real when a dragon breaks into his city and destroys uh, a traditional Catholic A-frame church, and in the process uh, his mother gets killed. So I'm quite literally starting the story with some, a fantasy creature destroying one of the largest symbols of Catholicism. <laughs> it's, so I don't even hide away from the conflict of, of religion against uh, belief, right? Aiden, the magic system in the story has nothing to do with believing magic exists. It's approaches, it's a form of a science. So our main character, Aiden, 
he approaches everything from a science. He's, a, he's very much a skeptic. He is an atheist, but he's also moving into a world of fantasy. He wants his cake to eat it too. And I wanted to present that in Amethyst. And so a lot of people say, well, I want to mix my magic and technology. I say, do it. It's not easy, but in the book we have it. In the book we have mixed groups of magic and technology. The story is about that collision. Can religion and, and, and science work together? Can magic and technology work together? And if you can, do we lose something in exchange? So yeah, Amethyst is heavily political because um, I feel that the story that I want to tell is also in that category. So yeah, I, I, if people have issues, like I, I this, and this is of course, you know me, and you know, we've talked about my artist. I'm looking forward to when I get to illustrate a same-sex couple mm -hmm. in the next, in one of the books. And I, I'm, I'm like, we're gonna have we're gonna have a same sex couple as an illustration. We're gonna, you know, and we're just gonna throw it out there, and just because I want to, okay. Just because I, th I just I just I just think, well, why not, right? I have I already I have a bunch of uh, regular heterosexual relationship illustrations in the first book. I have Aiden and Raven. I have a a, a hilarious illustration where this elf. Uh, is is uh, kissing uh, a a a Tekken human, who obviously is very shocked that this is happening. Um, so I throw in that story. I throw in that stuff. We, I, we I have an illustration which is an elf and a human in an embrace. But so there's, I might as I mean I might as like, mixing that up is is much more interesting to me. I, I don't want to. I told Nick uh, when we we're doing illustration. I don't want any filler illustrations. I want every illustration to mean something. That's right. that's right indeed. Okay, okay. Um, I have a lot of questions because you've you've said an awful lot about the sit, the setting, um, yeah. and I have an awful lot of questions. Um, firstly, regarding um, regarding slavery, this is something that has been a very controversial topic of discussion in many social media outlets um, because there is a very polarized um, view of the topic. In as much some people say that they want to be able to portray slavery and some people are saying you know there's no need because it's, it's too close to the bone for too many people so what what is your take on that and why have you kept slavery especially being such a you know close to real life slavery in in your game the, so when it comes down to the setting the way i built the setting was interesting because it started off as just dragons. That's it. No right. other fantasy elements, just dragons. Um, and it was post-apocalyptic. You had the walled city, and then dragons were outside. This was in the mid-90s, and then the film Reign of Fire came out, right. which was a post-apocalyptic story with dragons. I was like, well, there goes my idea. My, I still had my wall city of technology, which, which Reign of Fire didn't have. So I shelved that story until some friends wanted me to dust off and create a fantasy setting. So I took Amethyst, and I dumped it into traditional D&D. And I homebrewed that for several years until I got to about 2006, where I decided that I was going to try to publish Amethyst for real. Now, one thing about Amethyst is one thing, I, which is something I do a lot as a creator. I like doing what ifs. What if this happened? Mm -hmm. what, you know, uh, I have, a, I have a, a script called Palingenesis. What is like, what if we proved reincarnation was real? Right? We literally proved it scientifically, even to the extent of you being able to, to inherit skills and languages of your past lives. Right? So it's not even a dream. It's like we can literally prove it because suddenly, oh yeah, Paco, in an earlier life, you, uh, you, were, you were a Chinese scientist and now suddenly you can speak Mandarin. So you know that life is real. It's not you making things up like hypnosis. This is a scientific thing. But then I go, okay, now I, have to, now I have to expand it to the world. How is the world going to react to this? Right. And so with Amethyst was the same way. I looked at it and said, okay, magic's going to return to the world. Magic breaks down technology, which was something I developed only halfway through the campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and then we added it retroactively. Because I needed to, I wanted a division of magic technology. I wanted, I wanted them to be a separation. The fact that magic disrupts technology, I, I, I wrote in retroactively into the story as the explanation. 
Otherwise, it'll just turn into Shadowrun, and I didn't want Shadowrun. <laughs> I wanted, I, I wanted a, a dis distinction. I wanted cities of technology and then fantasy landscapes. And so the answer was, they have to break down each other. So I made magic disrupt technology. And so I looked at the world and said, what's going to happen, right? And I'll say, okay, chances are a lot of humans will band together. They'll probably put aside any of their petty bickering because they are gonna band together and they will eventually create communities. And if they want their technology to function, they have to keep anything that's non-magical, everything that's magical away from their town so in order to keep their technology working. Well, when you have a society that's constantly pushing people of a certain mindset, like you cannot enter our town. We don't want elves because uh, an elf walking through your town without even casting a spell, without even walking around the magic sword, and the fae radiates natural magic because that magic quite literally creates an environment for that fae to exist. So an elf could never fire a gun because there's a natural magical radiance coming off of anything that's magical. Humans are a little different. They're born generally not magical. They have to become magical in order to become magical themselves. And the story, and so I created rules to say, if you're a human, you're by default non-magical, which means you can go either the tech path or the fantasy path. If you go the fantasy path, you get a few opportunities to, to wield magic without you flipping. But if you wield too many magic weapons, if you benefit from, magic, from a magical spell, you incur these points. And, and suddenly you can just turn magical and next thing you know, you're radiating magic just like everything else. And the process is almost practically permanent. It's very difficult to switch back. So if you were a person that was a, a human uh, fighter that wielded firearms, suddenly you make a mistake and you wield some magic sword, suddenly you can't use your firearms anymore. And if you start your game as a magical caster, like a monk or a, sor or a sorcerer, then you've made that choice before the game even began. But looking at that situation, I would ask myself, okay, by all logic, knowing the human condition, if we say elves are not allowed in our city because they would break down technology, that would eventually turn into natural racism. It would, it would just turn into that. And the fact that elves are non-human as it is, considering how easily humans ostracize their own kind for minuscule minor deviations from, from what you accept to be white people, then they would automatically, obviously, become very xenophobic to anything that wasn't human. And the moment you dehumanize a species, right, even one that's intelligent and sentient, then you can do that, and it brings up a, a point, uh, something that a comedian said, um, where he says about the, how, the, um, how the pyramids were made. He's like, it's, it's amazing what, you know, how did, how did they build it? They just threw human suffering at them until they were built. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't give a fuck about a particular group of people. And it's, it's, a, it's a humorous way of saying it, but he's making an absolute point. And so it wasn't long between thinking, thinking, okay, then if that means one of these fantasy, one of these fantasy kingdoms that are human, because there are elf kingdoms and there are human fantasy kingdoms, one of them's gonna be one that's gonna embrace enslaving um, elves to create their empire, to build their empire on the backs of slavery, right? Because I felt that if you had this fantasy world that was set in the real world, populated by real humans, mm -hmm. it would be unrealistic if we didn't have a nation that endorsed the, ensla the enslavement of non-humans. Because we look at our own history and considering how easily people would enslave other humans, it seems pretty obvious that they would definitely... So for me, it wasn't like, it wasn't me going, I want to make a political statement, so I'm going to put L um, a, a, you know, a, a, a slavery kingdom in there. I looked at it and said, I was creating the setting, it was just like, it would be unrealistic if there wasn't one. So, so it was for me, it was like, and then that's when I went down in that direction. The same thing we were looking at uh, from a biological standpoint. Wait a minute. Technically, if humans and elves were are different species, technically we can't have half elves. And I had a friend who said, "Then you're right. Biologically, they wouldn't be compatible. So eliminate all half elves and just say you can't breed." But I was like, "Yeah, but I'm a hopeless romantic, so I want to have that." So I created a whole bunch of I created this idea of magical bonding, that 
uh, elf and a human, they could do it for as long as they want, but they'll never produce offspring. But if they bond, that human turns magical, and at that point, they can have children, which creates a very, which I thought, oh, okay, so I created this kind of bonding thing. All the elves do it. They bond with, uh, with their, so they become uh, very much a species that has to love who they're with if they want to have children, which is my which became, so this, once again, it wasn't me going towards a political statement. I'm just writing the story, and it just ends up going political. So, so, if the, so if elves have to bond with humans, and you can never force an elf to bond with you, because it quite literally is an emotional affection. It's literally, it's, it's more than just marriage. Um, then at that point, you can't have uh, the characters from Dragonlance. So, you know, so the, the, the two main characters from Dragonlance uh, one of the characters is a half elf, and he's uh, he's a, uh, he came off of because of an incident of rape. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, but it's I would say I'm not making that up. That's quite literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I remember Tani's Tani's half elf. Yes, yeah. I remember him. So I created a situation where it's virtually impossible for a half elf to be born in a broken household. That most half elves are actually born in household because they have a bonded couple. And then they're bonded, they're, they, they, they're, they're going to be, there's, there is this kind of emotional soul binding thing between these two. And so it's very difficult for a half elf to, to have that. So you could never, you can never force offspring from an elf, ever. So I, but, but that came out of me writing these rules for bonding. Mechanically, I was creating the rules. Then politics, emerged out of the mechanics I was mm. writing. So I looked and said, okay, well, if elves have to bond, therefore they can't have children, which means that prostitution is entirely legal in the, in, in the elf states because there's no chance of, of accidental pregnancy. And then I say elves are also immune to human disease because they're not human, so there's no worry about catching any, any, anything, which means they're very popular in that. But then I thought, yeah, unfortunately, the slavers would probably employ that as well. Because I just, I can't, I have to look at that way. I have to look at how, how hum- humanity is and operates. I love Star Trek, but I know what has to happen for us to get there. And there's a lot of bad stuff that happens yes. in the Star Trek timeline to get there. So I look at it going, it would be unrealistic if I didn't explore this. So when I wrote the bonding and this very romantic, idealistic way, I could not ignore how it would be corrupted by somebody that was evil. And so that's, that's, that's how the, every single aspect. So the slavery wasn't me going, I want to put slavery in. I looked at the set, mechanics of the setting and said, it has to be there. You would not have a, a real life Earth world and not have it because humans are humans. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, also, you mentioned about you know about um, the bodies, apart from being you know these these are southerners. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned ogres and goblins and so on and so forth. Uh, does that mean also that all ogres are going to be bad and all goblins are going to be bad? Is that that is there going to be that kind of bioessentialism? So are we going to see some diversity in the way that people can play goblins or ogres or, or what have you? Well, I I, I love that. That question because when I was writing, and I'm being more conscientious, conscientious now than maybe I was back in 2008, because I'm because tr- I make a point of talking about culture mm-hmm. and species, okay. right? Um, there are biological traits that the elves have that's just unique to them. The Limshaw elves are generally shorter. They're not as strong. The Baldinians are very very tall. The uh, dwarves aren't very dwarf-like. I wanted my dwarves to be more, they're just shorter and strong. They have, and, I, and, and then I go into their culture. So for example, the Tenen breed, which are these dark elves, which aren't dark-skinned, um, they, their entire culture has got a cognitive dissonance because the Tenen breed, their natural uh, psychological common traits is they like they like, they're very, very romantic, they're very culturally based, and they swing, to, they want to swing in this direction. But the largest Tenembri kingdom is like the, drow, like the Drow kingdom. It's very corrupt and very evil. And it enforces another way of thinking. So a lot of the Tenembri 
are suffering from cognitive dissonance because they're being told to believe a certain thing when their own biology tells them to believe the opposite. By default, Tenebrae want to be good, but they're part of a nation that's telling them that they have to be bad. So I, I, I make a, a very specific point of separating culture. And so the ogres, or the orcs of my setting, are called Pegas. Now the Pegas are, were once elves that got corrupted by, I would say darkness, but it's a, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, because um, this, this story deals with the collision of chaos and order, right? And most people think chaos is the forces of darkness with a warp. We see that with Warhammer. Uh, most people look at chaos as being evil. In Amethyst, I invert it. Magic is chaos. It's the one that creates every single life form in every possible form. It just throws caution to the wind. Anything you can think of will exist, and that becomes chaos. Order is actually the forces of darkness. So the evil force is entropy, the idea of everything being uniform. So this, this ideology corrupts these elves, and they turn into these very monotonous, drone-like, almost machine-like uh, uh, machi you know, uh, creatures. They are then controlled by these, these very evil people that are, that, 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 I wouldn't say enslaved them, but they've manipulated the, the Pegas to do their bidding. When the Pegas are raised outside of that influence, they are still pretty, they're kind of Vulcan-like. Like imagine like, the Pegas are kind of like, like Klingons if Vulcans merged together. So mm -hmm. imagine if you had that, that warlike mentality, but they were cold and methodical and logical at the same time. That's basically a Pegas. So when you raise them away from that culture, that mentality is still there, but they don't necessarily have to be bad people. And so the Pegas are bad in the setting by a majority, not because it's biologically part of their, of their way. It's because they've been told to do that by a high order. I make a point that there is no such thing as an evil race. I've, I make a point of that. There's no such thing as an evil race uh, in Amethyst. Uh, if you're intelligent enough, Mm -hmm. There's and if you can if you are civil if you're intelligent, then being civil is kind of something that can come naturally. Right, even the goblins, um, they're they're pretty they're pretty wild. They're very like the idea that the, the the more the more aggressive a creature is, the more it's influenced by chaos. So Ladinians are very logical, very unemotional. They're elves, but they're like the first elves. The longer time passes. Fey creatures become more influenced by chaos, and they can turn into more chaos-like creatures, like the goblins and the bu bugbears and so forth. And and uh, we 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 um, we have pugs. Pugs are um, are are the lowest. They're the goblins. Um, and then we have bogs, and we have skags. And these are kind of the, the the three levels of of the goblin kingdom. And they are very animalistic. They are very hard to control. But they also don't have a culture. They don't have a culture at all because. They're too wild. They're wild people. The slightly more intelligent ones are called skegs, and they enslave the other two goblin species whenever they can. So because of that system. But I made a I made a rule very early on that there wasn't going to be an evil species. There are bad cultures and evil cultures, and we have Baruch Malkat, we have some bad fantasy kingdoms, but I never say that there's a singular bad elf people. So every single person, I even have a character there, there are these um, like golem-like demons that are basically created to be evil. Even they <laughs> can be good. I even have situations where even they have, have moved away from that force of darkness. So I, as a literary person, I love the bad guy, a bad guy turning into a good guy by l acting a certain way and then being, and then showing what the opposite you know, my favorite character arc in Babylon 5 is Jakar, because you had a character that was very, very, seemingly very corrupt and evil and turns into one of the most uh, loved, beloved characters of the entire show because of that arc. Because that's what an arc is. I, I, want a, I want a character that has an arc. And so by natural, I like creating situations where people will play. I was a Tenebri. I escaped my, my, my oppressive people. I was a Pegas. I escaped from my oppressive people. Um, I find those infinitely more interesting than these are the Pegas, they're all bad. Not true. I mean, I, I just like the, I think the idea of all, the whole species being evil is completely stupid. I, don't, I just don't, don't buy yeah, into that at all. It's ridiculous. It, it, for, it doesn't make sense 
um, I, I, I can see sects of the like, S-E-C-T, sects like organizations within a species being evil, because we have that mm -hmm. in humanity. We have organizations that are just evil. We have cults that are absolutely evil. So we do have those cults, but they do not, they don't necessarily encompass. Now, in the case of the elves, there are small cults, but they're very small. The pagas, however, they're almost entirely in this vast, massive cult. And the same thing happens with racism. A lot of the humans and elves, even the peaceful ones, are very mistrustful of pagas because eight times out of 10, they're from this kingdom that's very, very corrupt. Mm. So it's difficult. So once again, we play off of that. It's like, if you're a pagas, and if you're a good guy, I absolutely want that. I said, please, that's a fantastic character. But please note that I am going to play this realistically, which means you are not going to have a good time in most uh, human kingdoms, right? Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, talking mechanically, uh, 5e compatible, there is magic. How actually verisimile or compatible, truly compatible, would be um, spells from the player's handbook for, for Amethyst? Well, I made Amethyst completely 5e compatible. Uh, Amethyst is the precursor to Ultramodern 5. So all of the stuff in Ultramodern 5 all the Tekken classes and all that, that's all in Amethyst. So if you wanted to play a, a human uh, real technology, you can. Mm -hmm. With the magic system, with the first book, I, and this is something where I, I say there, there's a canon setting of Amethyst. The original Amethyst D20 was like 60, 70% of canon. Quintessence is about 90%. It's pretty close to what it actually is. That 10% compromise was with magic, is with spellcasting. I said, by default, we don't have sorcerer, we don't have bards, and we don't have druids in our setting. The only spellcaster is technically a wizard and a cleric. And I gave the, this is how a cleric is. A cleric is naturally gifted. They don't have to be religious. The sort, and, then we, and then we said, a wizard, we said every single spell has a vocal component because that's how spellcrafting works. However, I still compromised by saying, you're still a wizard. You're still using the Vancian magic system. You're still saying name spells. You're still doing all that. Because I didn't, because the the original book was 400 pages. If I threw in an entirely original magic spellcasting system, it would be 600 pages. <laughs> it would be a nightmare. Uh, so the magic system in the original first book, Quintessence, is just a, is a slightly modified version of the traditional player's handbook fancy and magic system. So if you go into it, you just go, oh, I have to have a totem, which is it could be an orb or or, or a shield or a book. And all my spells are vocal, but beyond that, everything's basically the same. The new book, Revelations, I do want to create an entirely original magic system that is 100% canon. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in doing. Uh, Revelations is, is, I want to recreate the original player's handbook characters. So you can have a bard, a druid, a ranger, and paladin that are non-spellcasters that can still do what they do without being spellcasters. Uh, I want to do that. I'll, I want to take what I've learned from Ultra Modern and Affinity and break the mold, do things outside the box. Uh, and with Affinity, I created three different spellcasting systems that, and none of them were Vancian based. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying something that's actually canonical. And the idea for me with uh, Amethyst is that you basically form your spell as you cast it. So you, you know, where there, uh, a, light, a lightning bolt isn't a lightning bolt per se. You have a lightning path and you have eight different paths to choose from. And you could cast a spell at level one, level two, level three, level four, and you can determine what that, like, what that lightning spell does. But, there's, but you can also add in other elements. You, get, you can create your spell on the fly um, and you are not bound by having lists and lists and lists of magic spells. You don't have, you know, Morden Kanan's Invincible Sword or whatever. It, it's something that you're creating on the fly. Um, and in the, in the, in the book, uh, everything that a wizard creates has the, the appearance of intelligence. Because the, the idea of, of chaos is that it creates life in all forms. So a spellcaster is quite literally temporarily creating a living being out of fire, out of lightning, out of what have you. Um, and in the first book, Aiden creates a lightning beast. It basically looks like a leopard, but it's made out of lightning. And whenever he casts a spell, he casts that same lightning beast, and it, it becomes intelligent and alive. And so that's 
So when you cast a fireball, you're not creating a fireball. You're basically creating a fire elemental that will do your bidding. But how big is that thing going to be? So that's what I want to do. I want to create this amorphous spellcasting system. I don't know exactly the details because I haven't written it yet. I find that uh, notion that you just mentioned, you know, you're creating a fire elemental that's going to do your bidding is a bit, hi, I've created you. Now go over there and die and kill everything around you too. Ouch. Yeah, the, I, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't dodge around that. I don't dodge around that. Like literally there's a philosophical conversation that says when I create this, this, this spell and it vanishes, was it really intelligent or was it like a computer program? Was it just simulating intelligence? And if it is intelligent, did I, does it wink out of existence when the spell comes back? And when I recast a spell, does that same being come back or do I create a new being? And this is like in the same way of like the transporters in Star Trek, you know, it's like, do we die every time we go into a transporter yeah. and then a clone forms? And I wanted to create that philosophical conversation and create that ethical, that ethical point. I want to make it by going, wait a second, are we creating and killing beings every time we cast a spell? And I'm like, nobody knows. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the campaign because we've been going for 56 minutes. Um, and I want to talk about the campaign. Uh, how long is it going to go for? Uh, campaign starts on August 16th, runs for 30 days. Okay, and how are the pledge levels? How much are they going to be? Uh, the one thing I like about the D&D &D ones is that I, can, I offer digital and physical rewards. So you can get the digital PDFs of the game for, I think it's $19. I think it's only like $15 US, $19 Canadian. Uh, so I, I try to keep them at a very decent price point. Uh, then you can also get the novels in PDF or in soft cover. And mm -hmm. the novels are only like $3 each. Um, the uh, books, uh, I'm not doing the slipcase or boxes like Affinity because Affinity, uh, I mean, this isn't over. This is, Revelations is not the last book. So um, there's no slipcase. But there's going to be a standard edition. And they're going for uh, 69 Canadian, which I think is 55 US. Uh, like I said, it's a bit more expensive than the Affinity books, but these are 400 page books. Uh, and then there's going to be a leather set, which are the leather editions, and hopefully we'll have you know, satin bookmarks, metal corners, and, and, and high quality pages. That's going to be probably 99, I think 79 or, or, or $89 each. Uh, and then you can get the set, and you get the set, you save a bit of money. Uh, but uh, something I did in the first campaign, which I'll do, I'm doing again, that you can pay a bit more and actually have Nick Greenwood create a custom illustration of your Amethyst character, which will then enter the lore um, as, uh, as part of the Amethyst uh, setting. Uh, that caught, that's the, that's the, the, we only have 30 of those, and those are, those are a bit more expensive. Those are 600 bucks. But you also get every single thing in the Kickstarter. So we have multiple levels to choose from. I, I, the one thing you can't do, you can't just buy the first book. Because uh, you can buy the first two books on DriveThruRPG, so there's no real point of putting them in the Kickstarter. Okay. Um, in terms of delivery, when do you expect these books to be ready? Uh, I'm expecting the... I have the outline for Revelations already written, so I'm fairly certain, depending on how many unlocks we have, like if, I said, we, if we only unlock one or two things, assuming we do succeed, um, it, it'll probably be done by probably next spring. Okay. However, if we get through all of our projects, if we, get, if we get through every stretch goal and then Revelations becomes 400 plus pages, we're probably looking at late summer, which means physic the physical product, physical books will be usually five or six months after that because it takes time to develop the prototypes, print the books, ship them to, the, to a distributor and have the distribution go out. So I generally miss my deadlines by five or six months. <laughs> Like Affinity was six months late, Ultra Modern was six months late, uh, Affinity was six months late. Um, so I added a few months. So the, the campaign says December 2023, with the physical books being in March of 2024. I'm expecting the digital books to be ready well way before then. So people go, oh, surprise, look, it's done. Or maybe not. Maybe, I, I, maybe something does come up and it ends up being exactly where it's supposed to be. But I don't want to lie to people and say, It'll be out in six months because it won't be. Okay, fair enough. In terms of uh, printing, um, how are you going to do that? Because printing's become quite expensive and transportation of books ain't going to be cheap. 
Well, thankfully, we're reaching a point where gas prices are finally starting to plateau and they're starting to descend. Locally, we're seeing prices come down in gas. Um, the company I'm dealing with, the Chinese company I'm dealing with, Around Color, uh, so far, looking at the stuff I got for Affinity, uh, I am really, really happy. Um, and I'm hoping to get to 1,000 books printed because that decreases my per print cost significantly. Um, and I'm still working on finalizing my distribution channel. Right. I'm trying to find somebody that's competitive to do the job. When we did Naramata, we actually did our own distribution mm -hmm. um, because there was only like 200 games to go out. With the Amethyst, I'm currently on the hunt. I still have a contract with Quartermaster. They are very expensive. Uh, but I'm, I'm currently talking to two other companies and checking to see if, if they can be more competitive. Uh, but yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm fully aware that the distribution is sometimes more expensive than the printing of the game itself. It's mm. kind of freaky, the fact that it's, it costs almost as much to move, move a game than it was to make the game. Uh, and so I, I do tell people, and actually I do say in the Kickstarter that says, um, shipping prices are a guess. They might be more or less depending on the situation. We all know that shipping prices can go up and down. Um, just be aware. If you're living in the United States, which is where the games will dump, it's going to be cheap, relatively cheap. No matter where you are in the States, shipping in America is relatively cheap. If you're in Canada, it'll be a bit more expensive. If you're in Europe, you're going to pay VAT. You're going to be higher shipping. So if you back it, you're going to have to expect that increased cost. And if you're in Norway or Australia, expect a heavy shipping cost because shipping to there is a nightmare. It's very expensive. I don't know why Norway and Sweden are more expensive it literally costs twice as much to ship to Norway than it does to Belgium. Wow, that's that's ridiculous. I didn't know that. Uh, well, is there going to be a print-on-demand option for those of us who would like to get the game in Europe but don't want to have to, you know, go through all those VAT loops and holes and, and all those? Uh, I always do that. I always do that okay. with the Overwatch book, book, every book I have. If you get the PDF only, you get a coupon to get the print-on-demand option. Now, okay. um, so that uh, now. No one's ever said that, but sometimes people go, why is the print-on-demand so expensive? I say, that's the print-on-demand costs. I'm not making any money off the coupon because you've already paid. Like Correct. my markup my markup for the PDF is the exact same markup I use for the print-on-demand. So I make the same amount of money. Um, and the print-on-demand for Amethyst is $85 US, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so those people who wanted to do the option, if you think it's going to be cheaper for you because you know the shipping is going to be insane from, from the U.S., definitely go that route. But remember, the, the game itself is going to be about 35 to 45% more than the print cost, right? Because yeah. it's $85 U.S. compared to $59 U.S. Like, that's a significant difference in price. Uh, so. Yeah, but I, I can tell you that it would be a lot less than having to pay VAT, not just on the value of the book, but yeah. also on the value of the shipping because they, they tax the whole amount. So if, if I buy a book that's $99 and then the shipping is $40, I'm going to be paying a 21% of $140. Oh, that's such insane. Correct. That, that's, that's brutal. That, that's why even if a 50 box game will cost me through drive-through RPG 80 and then, you know, eight or nine euros to ship, that's yeah, still going to be a lot cheaper. Yeah, the like Lightning Source has three printing studios and one's in Europe, so it's correct. It's, yeah, one's in the U.S. Canada is one where it's actually expensive because we because there have been situations where they have determined that the U.K. shipper is actually cheaper than the U.S. shipper. It's just weird. But yeah, outside of 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 how much I hate Lightning Source when it comes to their technology, I do appreciate that they have offices everywhere in the world to make shipping not nearly as bad. It's, it's, it, it is a service that I know it can be criticized for many reasons. I, I've, um, the number of times, I've probably spent two or $300 on wasted books from Lightning Source, which arrived defective. Yeah, I've, I've had that, that case as well. I'm going to publish some books and I need to uh, reorder one three times until it, oh. it was. And it's not just a matter of the cost, but also the time. Uh, because when you're on a Kickstarter and you have to order things again and again, and every time it takes three or four weeks to arrive, you're yeah. delaying things by three months, not just by yeah. a few days. That is ouchy. But yeah, but we yeah no we do. If if you get a PDF, you will always get a print-on-demand option uh, for the coupon. Um, I, I I always offer that. I've been doing that since day one. 
Because the first the first one was only digital, so the only way to get the physical copy was on print on demand. Um, but same thing supply. You can you can get the third book, or you can get all three. We don't have, although you can order the books as add-ons after the campaign. Uh, you there's no pledge level for just book one quintessence because you can get that from drive through RPG right now. Okay, fair enough indeed. Well, okay, we've been at it for over an hour now, so I think people should know everything about your campaign by now. Is there anything we've missed? Uh, nope, like I said, it's going to launch uh, in uh, two weeks at 9 a.m. And you can go to the landing page now okay. and uh, sign up, and then you'll be informed when it launches. Like I said, the, the, the first pledge level is only 3 bucks, and it goes all the way to 600 so you can pledge how much you want. Good. Well, in that case, thank you very much indeed. Uh, listeners, thank you for being there. Viewers, thank you even more for being there. Much appreciated. And, um, well, we'll be talking to you very soon. Get in touch. Please, our email, podcast at gmsmagazine.com. If you want to come to the show, please talk to us because we, we love we love to have guests. We have some very esteemed guests in the past and it would be great to have some more. And um, find us on Twitter. I am at GMS Magazine. At GMS Magazine as well in Facebook, by the way. Yes, so you know. Say hi. Oh, and I'm on TikTok now. Links in the I show. Guess you are on TikTok because fo I'm following you on TikTok. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. I'm, I'm making some fun videos there. It's quite interesting. So we need to talk about TikTok and gaming at some point in the future. Not today. Anyway, the link the links are going to be in the show notes, people. So please do do take a look. And uh, well, you say goodbye now. And now uh, this is Chris from DSX Machina. Find me as DSX Machina on Twitter, Facebook, and I'm on TikTok as well. But <gasps> If you, if you follow me on TikTok, you're going to get cooking videos and some car videos because uh, my, my TikTok and my Instagram channels um, are, are merging on my personal channel, and I like cars and I like cooking. That idea. Well, um, talk to you soon, humans. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the GMS Magazine. Very noisy, dog-ridden fucking podcast. Psycho, you're annoying. Fuck off. Let's start again. Okay.